Hello everyone and welcome to this latest episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast and I'm delighted today to welcome Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge, also known to many of you I imagine as half of the double act that presents the Talking Politics podcast. Helen, welcome. Thank you Anon, pleasure to be here. First and foremost, let me get this out of the way. Helen's got a new book out that you should all buy. It's called Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century. And we're going to come back to it in a bit. But there are a few things I want to sort of talk through to you about the state of the world, which probably fit in with the book as well, Helen. The first is, I mean, you're a political economist, which basically, as far as I can figure out, means that you, you, you're a specialist on everything. No, I wouldn't quite put it like that, but... <laughs> so I'm going, to, I'm going to test this assumption now. So let's talk about the world economy first, because the world economy is very much in the headlines. There's a debate going on at the moment about whether current levels of inflation, particularly in the big industrial economies, are a reflection of a structural shift or just a short term trend. What do you reckon? I think there's two different things going on. I think that there is clearly a short term issue that's probably not to be honest, as clear as it was in the late autumn before we got to Omicron and the recovery, the economic recovery got hit by that. And that is, is as we come out of the at least pandemic economic conditions, let's put it that way, there's going to be considerable amount of supply side disruption. I think in terms of this aspect of it, how short term it is, is probably complicated by the issue of whether there's really been a significant change in certain labour markets, people taking themselves out of labour markets. I think there's some evidence that that is the case, at least in some countries. So that it may be that we need to adjust to a, like a one-off labour shock as we come out of pandemic economic conditions. And in that sense, I kind of have some sympathy with the sort of inflation's transitory position that we couldn't have the kind of economic disruption that the pandemic caused without there being a lot of fallout. I think that a lot of people, and I would include myself in that, thought that actually that when furlough schemes came to an end in countries like Britain, where there were furlough schemes, there might be more fallout in terms of unemployment, but that isn't what has happened. I think where I'm not really on team transitory is over energy. I think that there is a well, a significant set of structural forces that are at work that are causing energy inflation. They are not going to go away unless actually there isn't much of an economic recovery. So the more economic recovery that we have, the more I think energy inflation that there is going to be. And I think that what's striking about this energy inflation compared to, let's say, the 1970s is the 1970s, it was primarily coming out of oil and it was really a geopolitical shock rather than anything else, a shift in power away from Western countries in oil terms. I think what's different this time around is it's going on in all of coal, oil and gas. It's going on in all of three fossil fuel sectors. We look to be experiencing something like a China gas shock, a big increase in China's demand for gas at a point in which gas markets are becoming more global because they can be gas can be transported across the sea much more than used to be the case and we're seeing actually a, a competition between asian countries and european countries for the supply of gas and that given how high the demand is and there are issues with supply not least when you throw in the complications of geopolitics and russia then there is a i think a structural driver that's going to keep pushing gas prices up the difference, I think, between gas prices and oil prices is, is that oil prices, once you get enough 
sort of push upwards. We can see pretty clearly historically that it starts to destroy demand, at least a reasonable amount of demand. That's a bit more difficult with gas, particularly during the winter months, less so perhaps um, later in the year. And obviously we're in winter in the northern hemisphere. Interesting. I mean, and also, you know, we can sit and ponder for ages how the politics of this will play out. I suppose the specific question on that is, do you think the 70s have lessons to teach us about what might be happening now if we end up with a period of sustained inflation? Or do you think that's a complete red herring? I think that they do, including, I think, quite often that the energy story of the inflation of the 1970s is underdone. So what takes hold is that idea that actually inflation got out of control in the 1970s because, to put it sort of bluntly, trade unions ran riot, that kind of thesis. And I don't think that that thesis is correct. I think that it really underplays the role of oil prices, including the lobbying for higher oil prices from certain oil companies and the pressures that they put on, particularly in the United States. So I think that the better that we understand the causes of inflation in the 1970s, the less likely that we are to worry about the wrong things now. I think that's certainly true. I think the point which I sort of already suggested where there is a clear difference is, is there's no real demand shock to the energy problem and then it's inflationary ramifications in the 1970s. The, the shock is coming because the United States stops being the world's largest oil producer for a while the Soviet Union becomes that. And then in, in the Middle East is, is that the oil producing countries like first of all Saudi Arabia, but not only Saudi Arabia, I'm talking about the big ones now because it kind of really begins in Libya. And then later in the decade of the 70s, Iran start asserting themselves and, and show that they, they're going to make the decisions about how much oil is produced, who controls it, effectively what the price is going to be. As I say, there isn't some new demand that's coming from anywhere. Whereas what we've seen with China's rise, and it isn't just China, but it's India as well, but China's obviously the most important here, is, is like basically big demand shocks on the energy side, oil one fundamentally played out, I'd say, in the first part of the 2000s, sort of in, in the um, the scale of the shock became clear in the run up to 2008. And now it's quite possible, I think, that we're living through a gas shock that's coming from China. And this is where, again, it's different from the 1970s, is, is what's going on in the relative prices of coal and gas then has implications for electricity generation, and that has implications for green energy, solar and wind. So I would say that actually the situation that we're in now is actually quite a lot more complicated and quite a lot more difficult than it was in the 70s. But that doesn't mean to say there aren't things to be learned from the 70s. As I say, not least the fact of, the, of understanding energy's place in all this. And then just to make it even more complicated, we can add COVID to the mix of things that are, are changing. Your latest piece in the New Statesman, you talked about COVID ending old certainties in the West. But it's a fascinating phrase. I mean, you know, we've had lots of sort of over dinner conversations about what COVID might mean and whether the changes it's actually in are temporary or permanent. But what are those old certainties and how is COVID threatening them? I think there's two different things that have gone on. The first of them is the idea that pandemics were something that belonged to the past. I think that this is a strange reading of history, including for you know, people like you and me and perhaps in the, the age that we are. I mean, I certainly had no notion whatsoever before this pandemic started that there'd been a pandemic in 1968 or like 1957. So I think at some point we were just like ignorant of thinking that, okay, these are the kind of things, there might be a very low level risk of this happening, but it's probably not going to happen. And it hasn't happened in our lifetimes. Not true. It had happened once in at least, well, in both of our lifetimes. 
we've all had to come to terms with the fact that viruses have you know, more power than we would we would have liked to think in our lives. So I think that that's one thing. I think that at the same time, it is true that a kind of idea of progress in the West hasn't really gone away, but it's taken some battering, particularly perhaps over the last 10 or 20 years or so. We're not living any longer, I think, in that optimism that prevailed quite often in the 1990s. The idea that history had a direction, it was working out. It seemed to be the case that that direction was liberal democracy. And I don't think it was just Fukuyama who thought like that at all. I think that that faith is still there. I think you can see it in some of the ways in which science has been talked about in this pandemic, but at the same time, it was waning, at least in certain um, quarters. I think the other shock is, and this is a little bit obviously a more provocative thing to say, uh, but I think there's something in it, which is to say is, I don't think any of us would have thought that if there were a pandemic, that all the preparation that had gone on in Western democracies for such a thing happening would effectively be discarded and we go into universal lockdowns. And you can think about what the causality of this is, but it does look the case that there was some looking at China and going, wow, okay, that's that's what we did. And then following suit. Now, obviously there's some like reasons as to why you might think that the pandemic preparation wasn't suitable to the pandemic that we had and things became clearer in the moment that weren't there um, before. But I still think it's a bit of a shock to stand back and think, okay, at that moment, we just said, okay, the Chinese know how to do this, we'll, we'll do the same. Really understanding what the implications of that are going to take some time to get used to. And what's striking now is, is that now after that start where they're the same, even though in the end, obviously, China faces a problem on nothing like the scale, or at least it appears to, is that we've got a divergence again, because in China, the no COVID policy is absolutely you know, still in place. It's about, you know, like effectively shutting China off from the the rest of the world. One of the reasons why the supply side disruption is going to continue is so long as China runs a no COVID um, policy, then shipping out of China is going to be high risk. And, and that's pretty important, as we know, to international trade. So now I think that we're kind of going to start living in a moment of like divergence from that. We're going back our own way again. Yet at the same time, we've got to live with the, the sense in which actually everything that we thought we knew or the administrative state in some sense thought that it knew about how to deal with such a situation it didn't work out like that we had to do something different the political fallout of major events is always fascinating and equally always virtually impossible to predict i mean if you look at the slow burn way that the politics of 2008 played out it's a case in point but can we begin to speculate about what the experience of COVID means for possibly politics, but more public attitudes? Is it going to be a shift in favour of people favouring a greater role for the state? Or can you start to perceive what those trends might be? Or is it just too soon? I definitely think that there's something in the argument. I think I've probably made it myself a few times. Certainly in the first months of the pandemic, so through at least through 2020, that this was yeah. very much a oh, the return of the state, the return of the nation state at that as well, because of closed borders. Yeah. Even more geopolitically charged world economy than had become the case before the um, pandemic started. Everything about supply chains becoming a matter of security and, and risk. And I think that, that something of that has definitely stuck. I mean, aside from any other consideration, to be honest, is, is the amount of borrowing that's been required 
to provide the financial support that's been necessary through the pandemic means any kind of retrenchment from that is just pretty much impossible. There isn't any space to go back to the response to the 2007-8 crisis of the idea, okay, we need to cut down what the state's doing, cut down how much money the state is um, spending, even though we might want to be regulating using the state's power to regulate banks more, for instance. I, I just don't think that we, we live in that political world at all, and we can't go back to it. Yeah. And I think that is quite consequential, if we just think about it in terms of like British politics, and you see quite a lot of people, or enough people anyway, some people in the Conservative Party, I mean, like the Lord Frost position, let's say, want to go back to the Conservative Party being the party of small state, low taxes. Well, it seems to me that that's pie in the sky, because that world's gone. That political and economic world's gone. All the political parties have got to start from the, now the way the world has become as a result of COVID and what I would say in the, in the few years before it as well. And this means that the state is going to spend more money and it's going to be more involved in certain areas uh, of economic life than was mm. previously the case. The things that are harder to think about are the new conflicts between citizens in some sense that have now come into play. And when we we were used, obviously, to a set of conflicts dominating democratic politics in, in Western democracies in the decade or so leading up to the um, pandemic. But we've now got a set of really clear differences, I think, about the way in which citizens, different citizens, regard questions of mortality, regard questions of like how to live in the face of mortality, what kind of risks are worth taking, who should bear that those risks... Yeah in relation to healthcare, et cetera. And I think that this isn't quite the politics that we were used to. Although the politics of health was always important in British politics because of the National Health Service, obviously there was lots of contest about whether enough money was being spent on the NHS and how it should be organised. I still don't yeah. think there were these same kind of like value contests about health that now look like that they're part of our politics. Are they really though? I mean, you mentioned the sort of David Frost group. And one of the things that strikes me is just whether it's on matters of taxation and economic policy or whether it's on matters related to COVID. It's always struck me that that group of Conservative MPs is just massively out of touch with public opinion. Is there really that division in public opinion, do you think? I mean, it struck me the British public was overall relatively consensual about this, you know, in terms of levels of backing for lockdown. I mean, I entirely agree with you on the economic side of that and the Lord Frost position. Right. Um, I think I would have agreed with you all the way through 2020, certainly, and well into like 2021. I'm not sure when I would put it. it might even be as like late as last autumn. Um, but it seems to me that, that there's been more fraying of the consensus in the last few months in terms of people yeah. who actually would like some, if not zero COVID policy some extremely low COVID policy pursued and those who and people who were for a lot of the time we're talking about actually quite pro lockdown right and wanted to be very cautious who now are moving away a bit from that position I mean I agree that generally there's been a reasonable amount of consensus but I'm not sure how much it holds any longer particularly I would say in the face of the milder consequences in sheer health terms of, of Omicron and talking about frame consensus, I think it was a couple of weeks ago that you wrote about the fact that support for Boris Johnson was waning among leavers, among leave supporters. What implications do you think that might have going forward? I mean, is that a fundamental shift that the government ought to be very, very worried about? 
If you look at it in terms of like sort of 30 years or so of like of British politics, maybe longer now, certainly since like the 1992 election, if you take out the election of like last time, the 2019 election, the Conservative Party has struggled even when Cameron was winning that majority uh, in 2015. I can't remember the exact figure, mm-hmm. but it wasn't much more than 37% of the vote, was it? I mean, it certainly was, it was well under 40%. And he was as surprised by the majority as anyone else, it seemed. Yeah, the vote. And then even though the percentage goes up in like, um, 2017 the majority is lost so if you're looking at it from like a sort of medium-term perspective the 2019 election result was a real outlier for the conservatives now i think you can make an argument and i would sort of make this argument in part myself that the decisive factor in that election was jeremy corbyn rather than brexit but at the very least brexit was a very mm-hmm. a significant part of the story you know it's a bit difficult to disentangle and at a certain point i would say they actually reinforced each other yeah in terms of the voters who were willing to either to stay at home or to vote conservative for the first time and i think it's pretty difficult to see certainly once you've taken jeremy corbyn out of the picture how the conservatives can do as well or even half as well in terms of size of the majority without retaining voters that they added to their coalition and perhaps the voters that they kept at home as well. And so I think that a situation in which those swing voters, or at least enough of them, feel pretty disillusioned with Boris Johnson is a big deal for the Conservative Party. Although it's pretty easy to see why loss of popularity has happened, it coincides pretty directly with the succession of stories about parties, etc. in number 10, it's not really clear what the Conservatives, to me, can do about it because the possible leaders that they have who could replace Boris Johnson don't have the same credibility with these voters. So just because Johnson's lost the credibility doesn't mean that anybody else in the Conservative Party can get it back, I think. Even if they were a lever, like even if they were themselves on the, the leave side, because Johnson's credibility from this, I mean, if that's the right word for it, I think comes from the fact that he was so despised by many on the Remain side and that he, in mind of some many leavers anyway, stood up for the vote actually counting um, in the end. Now, he did that, in my view, in a kind of like pretty sort of casual and not particularly coherent way. But in that crisis, if you like, of 2019, he was the route and perhaps the only route actually to Britain leaving the European Union. And I I don't think the Conservatives can just put another lever in its place and think that, okay, we get their trust back now. I don't think it works like that. No, I've always thought that the other side of the Johnson appeal was the fact that he seems to be a man of no fixed ideological beliefs. And that makes him uniquely able to hold together a coalition that involves tax-cutting Thatcherites and new red wall voters because he can appear as a man for both sides because he's able to shift and he's very, very hard to pin down. It does strike me that the other problem the Conservative Party have is if they have a leadership election, people are going to have to put their cards on the table about their economic outlook. And for any of the putative replacements, that level of ambiguity is just not either achievable or sustainable, which means that the coalition is going to look a little bit more frayed. I would just say that Johnson, I mean, I don't think he's got a particularly, you know, like economically liberal bone in his body. I mean, I know that he used all this language when he was like mayor of London. But I mean, I think that if you look at what he's been like as prime minister, he's very at ease with what the state does, particularly if it serves the purposes of Boris Johnson. 
I'm sure that he wouldn't think that the easiest way of winning an election is tax increases, but he does seem to be a politician, perhaps schooled by Dominic Cummings during the Leave campaign, who understands the importance of neutralising at least the NHS issue for the Conservative Party. I certainly don't think that's the case of some of the people who've been talked about as possible successors to him. I mean, actually, we're, we're talking on the day that Michael Gove was presented the new levelling up white paper. Do you think that's a way to hold the coalition together by talking in terms of inequalities and addressing them? I mean, I think that the levelling up aim, I should say, I haven't actually read the paper, um, the levelling up aim is central to the idea that the Conservative leadership had post-December 2019 general election as to how it was going to hold on to this electoral coalition. I don't think it ever thought you could keep fighting elections about Brexit forevermore. And it certainly stopped any possibility of that once Keir Starmer moved Labour into the position in which he did. So in that sense, that having been in some sense gifted those voters by Brexit, then the strategy had to be, can some material improvement be directed towards those voters? And that's in its essence what like levelling up is about. And I think that Johnson had some sense that it could be tied to net zero as well. And I think that's particularly true in terms of his ambitions about offshore wind, the East Coast, tying up northeast of England and Scotland, bringing that into the picture. I think that's what the direction of travel was supposed to be before the pandemic came along and pretty much meant the whole energy of the government had to be directed um, somewhere else. But the political imperative for it, the political need for it, hasn't gone away. Uh, And that's what Michael Gove is clearly trying to address with this white paper. The difficult thing, as we know, is, is, well, how do you translate that very quickly, i.e. in electoral timescales, into something that's going to make a meaningful difference, either to individuals' lives or to these places? It is in part, I think, a politics of place, but I think the politics of place is very difficult to do anything much other than sort of talk the language of it in the short term. Yeah, or, you know, pick 20 town centres and spruce them up in the next 18 months. It seems to be part of a plan, but maybe I'm being too cynical. I mean, one of the problems with you, Helen, is you write on so much that I could just keep talking to you for ages. But I did promise that we'd talk a little bit about the book. So I want to end talking about the book. I mean, the book is fascinating. I mean, you you sort of you weave together three stories. There's a geopolitical story, an economic story, a democratic story. And it strikes me that, I mean, I'm jealous of people who have this sort of serendipity. Crucial to all those stories seems to be energy. And my God, what better time to release a book that has as its core, from a very ambitious book that has as its core the politics and the political economy of energy than now. But would you like to just sort of run us through the key arguments you make? There is a theme through the book, which is is energy. It features a lot more in the, well, it features most of all in the geopolitics story. And what I'm trying to do in the geopolitics story is is basically explain how we got from the beginning of the age of oil at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, into the kinds of problems that oil as an energy source causes now. And I would say that it causes huge geopolitical disruption. It's an important part of why the US-China relationship has turned out in the way that it is. It's very obviously disruptive in the Middle East. And it's pretty clearly, although more attention is paid to the gas side of it where Russia is concerned, it's pretty important in understanding what's going on in Russia's position in the world. And what I'm trying to do in this part of the book, and then the way I take energy further forward through the economic story and the democratic story, is it try to explain how what can seem that these quite technical questions about energy, including some fairly 
in some sense, dull things like gas pipelines and where they go, how the consequences of these issues can kind of like play out across the different spheres. So it has consequences for monetary policy, for instance. It, it, it's an important part of the story. The um, rise in the price of oil in the mid-2000s is why the Federal Reserve Board ends up pursuing a monetary policy that plays its part in the American housing crisis, has knock-on consequences in terms of what happens during the financial crisis. And then in the post-2008 world, we move into the, in, into the age of shale oil, shale gas. The United States returns to being the largest oil producer in the world through at some point in the middle of the 2010s. And this has profound consequences in the Middle East. It really disrupts the American-Saudi relationship that has consequences in Syria. We know the Syrian crisis then spills over into the European Union refugee crisis in 2015. We're into issues about Brexit. And I'm basically what I'm trying to do all the time is show how there are a set of disruptive flows that come out from energy in particular, and in some sense are the underlying story to a lot of the political disruption that got focused in 2016 on Brexit and Trump, but I would argue runs much deeper. Would you argue then that, you know, the transitions we're about to experience as a result of net zero, the climate crisis, are going to have similar scale of impact on geopolitics, on economics and on democratic politics as well, that we're just, we're ushering in a new series of energy related crises? Yeah, I mean, essentially where I finished the book is, is by trying to explain where I think the geopolitics, economics and democratic politics of net zero is going and try to bring out what an enormous change that this actually is. And I think that the whole language of net zero and the way that these commitments have been introduced don't really grapple with the enormity of what really amounts to an energy revolution. And I think that particularly in Europe, there's a hope for some sort of understandable historical reasons that green politics is going to be transformative and particularly perhaps it's going to be transformative of Europe's geopolitical difficulties, geopolitical situation, because although various European countries like Britain and Germany were able to use coal to fuel their industrial development, the age of oil and gas has been much less geopolitically kind to Europe. And I think that there's a hope in Europe that green energy will be freeing for Europe, you know, be freeing it from Russian dependency and all the energy dependency and all the consequences we can see that has for how the Ukraine crisis is developing at the moment. But I just don't think that that's a realistic hope, not least because the change that will take place is going to take a long time. It's going to take longer than the 2050 horizons. But just as importantly, what I argue is, is the geopolitics of fossil fuel energy, it isn't going away. So actually what we're going to get is, is all these geopolitical fault lines that are coming out of fossil fuel energy, particularly oil and gas, are going to interact with the new geopolitical tensions that are coming out of green energy. The green energy is, is actually about, it's in part anyway, about the climate crisis. And you have these incentives for cooperation, particularly between the United States and China in the face of the climate crisis, but actually they are going to have intense geopolitical competition over green energy and everything that goes with it. And there's just no historical reason to, to think we can have such a profound energy change without having a really big geopolitical fallout from it. 
Well, the next time I'm starting to feel calm and relaxed, I shall give you a ring just to sort of set myself straight that everything is going to hell in a handcart. But listen, I mean, for those listening, if on the back of this you don't feel compelled to go out and buy Helen's book, I really don't know what's wrong with you, but it's well worth getting and well worth reading. And I know Helen's doing quite a few events in the near future to launch it. If you can get to any of those, then do. But for the moment, Helen, that was utterly fascinating. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to do it. Pleasure, Anon, pleasure. 